0: Two people are watching a stage performance of Shakespeare's Hamlet. I preferred the Disney version, says one, you know, when he was called Simba. To which the other replies, yeah, this is just a bunch of cliches. And while that does hold a grain of truth, the more specific truth is that Shakespeare invented many cliches. The saying, in my heart of hearts, comes from that play, as does, in my mind's eye. Eat me out of house and home, Henry IV, Part 2. Break the ice, the taming of the shrew. Love is Blind, the Merchant of Venice. Such was Shakespeare's control of language that he was able to reach inside the human heart and interpret its hummings to bring us a greater, more articulate understanding of what it means to be alive. Shakespeare died on April 23, 1616, and if time is the measure of all things, we can assume the Bard of Avon had some considerable insight into the human experience. On the 400th anniversary of his death, we are still reading, reciting, performing, filming, and watching his plays. According to the IMDb website, there have been over 1,000 adaptations of his works, and that makes him by far the most filmed author in any language. Quite the achievement when you consider he only wrote 37. Obviously, there are some favourites Romeo and Juliet, Hamlet, Macbeth, and Othello, but Cardenio has never made it to celluloid, and no one has ever bothered with the two noble kingsmen. Pericles, or Cymbeline, which may prove that not even Shakespeare was Shakespeare every day. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them to die. To sleep, no more and by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to tis a consummation devoutly to be wished yet for the glut of adaptations bringing his place to the screen is a difficult proposition first off plays are excuse the pun stage band The discipline of theatre is for the play to deliver the drama within a fixed time and setting. That's not just me talking. That is over 2,000 years of Aristotelian thinking. His theory was about dramatic unity. A good drama, Aristotle said, is played out in one space and in as near to a continuous time as possible. But just because Aristotle said it all those years ago does not mean we can't challenge and stretch the principle. And following that, just because Shakespeare wrote brilliant drama for the stage does not mean we can't change it when bringing it to the screen. Of course, purists will decry such practice ruins a text that they hold sacred. Now is the winter of our discontent, made glorious summer by this son of York, and all the clouds that lowered upon our house in the deep bosom of the ocean buried. Now are our brows bound with victorious wreaths, our bruised arms hung up for monuments, our stern alarums changed to merry meetings, our dreadful marches to delightful measures. The main reason Shakespeare's plays have lasted so long is because they are so rich and complex their meanings change. Or to put it another way, they can withstand several interpretations over many centuries. They are not fixed entities, but rather are fluid and flexible. Fertile ground for re-examination. We've got to remember that Shakespeare often wrote stories set in ancient Greece or Rome, but dressed as actors in then-contemporary costumes, and then had them speak in then-contemporary language. So the idea of updating Shakespeare is hardly new. Oh, won't thou leave me so unsatisfied? What satisfaction canst thou have tonight? The exchange of thy love's faithful vow for mine. I gave thee mine before that said requested. The first Shakespeare adaptations date from the silent era. One of the first film versions is one of his minor history plays, The Life and Death of King John. It dates from 1899 and was soon followed by an adaptation of The Tempest. That runs all of 12 minutes, and as such, it really is a daring piece of work. With so little resources to convey the plot, no dialogue and only a minimum of intertitle cards, the film works very hard and, for the most part, succeeds in visualising what Shakespeare verbalised. Moreover, this version proves that cinema is a great liberator of Shakespeare's words. There is a scene when Ferdinand chases Ariel. She simply vanishes and does so solely because of cinematic special effects. In other words, this is where the play truly transcended its own medium and the story became a movie. I and my fellows are ministers of fate. The elements of whom your swords are tempered may as well wound the loud winds as diminish one Tao that's in my plume you can divide Shakespeare's adaptations into roughly three categories – faithful, casual and radical. In the early days of cinema, indeed up until the 1940s, the faithful was the preferred form. Performed almost word for word, these adaptations didn't visualise the story as much as simply verbalise what Shakespeare wrote. A casual adaptation splices the genes of the classical literature with contemporary pop culture – which gives you versions such as Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet and Joss Whedon's Much Ado About Nothing. That principle can be traced back to the 1930s, when Orson Welles completely redefined our relationship with Shakespeare by changing the location for Macbeth from Scotland to Haiti, and then Julius Caesar, where he set it in then-contemporary fascist Italy. Such invention paved the way for the third category, radical, This is where you take the plots, but completely update the setting and the language. So, The Taming of the Shrew becomes 10 Things I Hate About You. Twelfth Night becomes She's the Man. And Hamlet... And that is not to say that alterations never happen in theatre. There is always a modification here or there, even if only it allows the production to give a specific interpretation, as is the case with Hamlet. At its full length, the play runs for over four hours. And why? Without being flippant, it's not because there is so much plot, but because there are so many words. This is because when Shakespeare was writing, way back in Elizabethan England, the tradition of the theatre was that the stage be completely unadorned. No backdrops, no set dressing, minimal props. And because of that, Shakespeare had to fashion the images, yes, in the mind's eye, exclusively by way of words. To put it plainly, his words visualised what was otherwise verbalised. And in that way, we got to glimpse the emotion, the idea, the reason for human behaviour. Cinema is sight and sound, and I think you are wasting half the medium's potential if you say one thing and show me the same thing. So for me, the best adaptations of Shakespeare's plays are the ones that take a machete and flamethrower to the text and slash and burn their way through the pages until the only dialogue that remains is what you cannot visualise. And even then, the best filmmakers will try to externalise the soliloquies. And there lies the rub. A film has to find a visual language that replaces Shakespeare's unrhymed iambic pentameter. A very tall order, I know, and there have been precious few films that have tried doing so, but for me, the ones that try are the ones that succeed. Dating from 1964, there is a terrific Russian adaptation of Hamlet, the script for which was written by none other than Boris Pasternak. Directed by Grigory Kozintsev, this film shows that you can slash and burn the text and lose very little in the process. The opening scene on the battlements is gone. Ophelia is dressed not so much in a corset as much as an iron ribcage that visualises the restrictions accorded to women of the era and in the film's climax, Hamlet's monologue is reduced to just one line. Fittingly, he says, the rest is silence. Shot with an aspect ratio of 2.35 to 1, Kuzintsev structured his adaptation around a series of visually arresting set pieces, often keeping the camera rolling so that the events are captured in long, sinuous takes. Which is completely the opposite to Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet, I think this is one of the most adventurous and therefore one of the most successful adaptations ever afforded to Shakespeare in English-language cinema. Pop music, fashion, drugs, MTV. It's all there, front, loud and centre. And while occasionally Lorman is heavy-handed and guilty of vulgarity, those moments remind us that Shakespeare's plays were not for the purists, but for the masses. What's to be done? Be innocent of the knowledge, dearest Chuck. Till thou applaud the deed. full of scorpions is my mind. Last year, Justin Kurzel mounted a daring version of Macbeth. I say daring not only because of its striking visual and sound design, but because Kurzel was going up against not just Shakespeare, but also one of the greatest cinematic artists the medium has ever seen, Akira Kurosawa. In 1957, Kurosawa transposed the Scottish play to feudal Japan. Dialogue is kept to a minimum. In English, Komuni Seijo is known as Throne of Blood, but the direct translation means Spider Web Castle. And throughout the story, the castle of the title is shrouded in such heavy mist that Macbeth himself, here named Washuzi, finds it hard to find his way back home. In the end, he is impaled by a volley of arrows that leave him looking like a porcupine. Almost 30 years later, Kurosawa tackled Shakespeare again, with a very loose adaptation of King Lear. The movie is called Ran, which means chaos, and it runs for over two and a half hours. And while the first hour is very wordy, what follows is a sweeping and epic delivery of sound and fury as you can ever hope to experience in the cinema. In two great battle scenes, colour and movement collide in symphonic splendour. And in those extended sequences, the film manages to scale visual heights that are the equal of Shakespeare's blank verse. Three of those last four titles are not in English, which might suggest that the best Shakespeare adaptations are translations. That's not wholly accurate. Wells made two startling films, Othello and Chimes of Midnight. But although they were both in English, is a film of a play, not a translation in itself. Similarly, although Shakespeare wrote in English, the English we speak now is so far removed from his Elizabethan vernacular that we often need a reader's guide to understand what he was saying. Perhaps that is how you keep Shakespeare from being misunderstood. As far as education is concerned, the major problem is the method by which his works are examined. Consider this, Emotions have not changed in the centuries since his death. It's not as if, after the French or Bolshevik revolutions, Danton or Lenin woke up one morning and said, I've discovered a new emotion. But we have developed new technologies, and we can use them to probe the emotions Shakespeare probed. That just might mean distilling a soliloquy to 140 characters. Dumbing down? Hmm. Brevity is the soul of wit, Hamlet, Act 2, Scene 2 And then, put it all to a hip-hop beat and upload the accompanying 3-minute clip onto YouTube Now that's translation To be or not to be That is the question Whether tis nobler in the mind To suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune Or to take arms against a sea of troubles And by opposing, end them To die, to sleep no more